This is an ABC podcast. I think there is a danger. Uh, I mean, a lot of um, focus was on the United Nations vote, uh, and that, I think, gave a slightly false impression that the that the majority of humanity was represented by governments condemning Putin, when if you add those that abstained, the 35 countries that abstained to those who voted with Russia, you'll actually get about half of humanity, China, India, uh, some, some really big countries in there. So this isn't a global consensus at all. That's the prominent commentator Ed Luce on why the West is rash to assume the world is on its side over Ukraine. Hello there, this is Tom Switzer from Radio National. Welcome to another episode of Between the Lines. Well, the Washington definition of a gaffe is when a politician blurts out the truth at an awkward moment. Well, by that standard, Joe Biden, he's a very honest politician, isn't he? During his long political career, and remember, he was elected to the Senate in 1972 when Richard Nixon was president, Since then, Biden's made many gaffes, none perhaps more significant than last week's in Poland. Putin has the audacity, like all our autocrats before him, to believe that might will make right. For God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. That's President Biden there saying out loud what virtually every Western leader is surely saying in private. That is the end of Putin. Now, the awkward bit, according to our first guest, is that the Russian regime change, well, that could now be mistaken as NATO's explicit goal. What would that mean? Edward Luce is the Financial Times chief US commentator and columnist and a former bureau chief in both Washington and New Delhi. Ed is author of, among other influential books, The Retreat of Western Liberalism, that was in 2017, and Time to Start Thinking, America and the Spectre of Decline. That was 2012. Ed, welcome back to Between the Lines. It's a pleasure to be here, Tom. Now, let's start with Biden, because since he made that gaffe in Warsaw, he he says he's staying by his comment that Putin should be removed as Russia's president. He says he was expressing the moral outrage I felt. So what's going on here, Ed? Well... Uh, you know, as you know, Biden gave this this set piece speech in Warsaw at the Royal Castle, not that far from the Polish Ukrainian border, um, in which democracy versus autocracy was his framing of this Russia Ukraine situation. And then at the end, he ad libbed something not in, on the teleprompter, uh, a classic Bidenism, um, which, as you put at the beginning, blurting out the truth at an awkward moment, and it is the truth. <laughs> Um, that, uh, you know, most Western leaders, probably all of them, would love to see the back of Putin. But, uh, of course, Biden's officials, including Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, then spent the next 24 hours very manically trying to convince everybody this was not NATO policy, it wasn't official US policy, and it isn't um, US official policy. The fact, though, that Biden... Uh, then stuck to it when he was questioned back here in Washington, D.C., and said, look, this is just what I feel. It's not, it's not official policy. I think in a strange way was almost helpful 
um, because he admitted essentially this is the definition of a gaffe. Uh, he, uh, <laughs> um, and remember, there is another there is another word for gaffe in Washington, which is Bidenism. He, he had. <laughs> He has uh, he has form on this, um, and, and therefore well, I suppose I... this raises the question though: this gaffe of Biden's does that make Putin even less likely to settle terms that could help end the war in Ukraine? Now, before you answer that question, Ed, this is the distinguished British military historian Max Hastings on this program a few days before Biden's gaffe. He was on this program, and this is what he told me: I don't personally believe that military victory over Russia is attainable, and nor do I think that yeah. most of us want to see a general war with Russia come out of this as a consequence. But on the other hand, I do believe that our leaders have got to display a mixture of firmness, absolutely rightly supplying arms to the Ukrainians and so on, but also an understanding that sometimes we can't send Putin to stand in the corner. He's a horrible man. We all want to see him go. We all want to see him disappear. But he's not going to disappear unless Russians make him disappear. And at some point, both the Ukrainians and the West are going to have to talk to him. And this is painful. But one thing I hope very much as this very frightening crisis continues to unfold is our leaders don't start resorting to um, rhetoric that means nothing about how we've got to see this guy off, that we've got to make no compromises, no concessions to these people. In the real world, there always have to be concessions, even with horrible regimes like Putin's. That's the British military historian Max Hastings on this program last week, making the case for offering Putin a diplomatic off-ramp and even a face-saving exit from Ukraine. Ed Luce. Well, you know, there is a great uh, emotional wave, a very understandable emotional wave um, across uh, the West, particularly in Europe, but also in the United States, in revulsion at uh, these sort of mid 20th century tactics that we haven't seen, with the exception, with the massive exception of Bosnia in the 1990s, which, which we really haven't seen uh, on this scale since the Second World War in Europe. And so I understand um, and I think we all we can all understand the the emotional politics about Putin being a persona non grata now. But the reality of the situation is that there isn't going to be regime change in Russia, even if it were the declared NATO policy. There isn't going to be a situation where the West can occupy Russia and impose a new government on Moscow. And therefore, at some point, and that might be at least in interim form sooner than we think, given that the Ukrainians and the Russians are, are, are negotiating at the moment. At some point, there's going to have to be some kind of deal uh, with Putin, doubtless a deal that uh, we will all treat with the utmost skepticism. Any ceasefires, any announced Russian withdrawal of troops um, could well be a feint. It could well be a false flag. It could well be um, uh, the KGB mind uh, of Putin playing playing games. But the fact is, uh, Putin's the person we're going to have to deal with at some point. And, and therefore, I think, you know, if there is a, a stronger critique uh, of what Biden is saying, the very understandable um, negative views that he has of Putin, if there is if there is one critique, it's that he's not preparing the ground very well for a settlement that's going to have to happen in some form with Putin. So you don't think that Biden's gaffe will change 
Putin's calculations in practice? Uh, I, I doubt it. You know, I think that Putin's made pretty clear um, over a period of a number of years now since he annexed Crimea in 2014, that he has a larger goal to reincorporate Ukraine and maybe other former Soviet territories back into Mother Russia's fold. Um, and I, I don't think that normal carrots and sticks are necessarily going to shift him from, from that ultimate semi-messianic goal that he's got. Um, but it could uh, weaken Western unity, which has been one of the great silver linings uh, of what's happened since February the 24th. It could lead to cracks in Western unity and Western resolve. And, and since the main purpose of Biden's speech in Warsaw uh, was to st stress that democratic unity, then and to that extent, it could, it could prove troublesome. Yes, and to the extent that, that anti-Russian sentiments are so high in Washington, especially among Biden's own party, I mean, it is quite extraordinary how many left liberals and Democrats sound just as hawkish, if not more hawkish than the Republicans. You make this point in a recent FT column, Ed. I mean, to the extent that continues, that makes it more difficult, presumably, to keep the Western alliance united as calls grow to end the war. Ed Luce. Yeah, it's difficult because, you know, clearly the, the sort of liberal consensus has, has slaughtered a lot of holy cows. It's, it's moved beyond Vietnam. It's moved beyond the Iraq war. It's, mm -hmm. it's, in a, it's in a far more hawkish frame of mind than I think I've ever seen. How do you account for that? Well, part of it is to do with the fact that the Trumpist or, or what some people call the pro-Putin wing of the Republican Party is so virulent, is so strong, and that the Fox News and other sort of main out mainstream outlets or certain anchors like Tucker Carlson on Fox News are really over Putin apologists. Uh, and so it, it's it's bound up with the visceral sort of domestic political polarization here in Washington. And of course, Trump himself um, keeps, in, sp in spite of you know all the advice, keeps making admiring comments about Putin. And as, as uh, recently as today, he um, asked Putin to provide dirt on Hunter Biden. I mean, can, can you imagine a sort of horror film Mark III worse <laughs> than, than that, given um, Trump's history with Zelensky? Um, so I think it's bound up with that. But as I say, this is a very emotional a very emotional feeling uh, on the left and, of course, large parts of the right against um, against Putin, which is going to make it difficult for the what Churchill called the jaw jaw bit to replace the war war bit when when it comes to talking to Putin. My guest is Edward Luce, the Financial Times chief US commentator and columnist. Ed, we mentioned this point about Western unity. Clearly, this Ukraine crisis has served as a wake-up call across much of Western Europe, especially Germany, and we've dealt with this issue in past episodes of Between the Lines. Now, it's widely believed that the US and its NATO allies have not been so united in generations, and of course, nations from Japan to Australia, we agree in a tough response to the Russian aggression. But is there a danger in assuming that the world is on the West side over Ukraine? I think there is a danger. Uh, I mean, a lot of um, focus was on the United Nations vote. There's been two or three, but the big one in early March, where 141 countries 
out of 193 voted to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, and that, I think, gave a slightly false impression that the, that the majority of humanity uh, was represented by governments um, condemning um, Putin, when if you add those that abstained, the 35 countries that abstained to those who voted with Russia, you'll actually get about half of humanity, China, India, uh, some some really big countries in there. Um, And uh, India, of course, is a democracy. So that sort of further confuses um, this sort of democracy versus autocracy framing. The sanctions, the, the really stringent and unprecedented Western sanctions that we've seen applied to Russia, with the exception of uh, oil and gas, uh, are not being emulated or followed um, by most of the rest of the world. Latin America is almost completely refusing to. Tiny parts of Africa have signed on, but base and the Middle East is basically completely absent, including Israel. So this isn't a global consensus at all. Well, well the Saudis aren't even taking Biden's calls, but they're, talk- they're, they're taking Putin's calls. Yeah, and the Emiratis. So um, Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, went to the Middle East this week and he he did meet with um, the foreign ministers of, of Israel, Egypt, Bahrain and Morocco. So there is a, a little bit more movement there. But of course, that then in itself is a bit of a complication um, because Biden's democracy versus autocracy speech does not sit well with with Blinken um, and his Egyptian counterpart backslapping each other. Egypt, it should be stressed, comes even lower than Russia on the Freedom House Index, as does Bahrain. These are brutal autocracies. And of course, Vietnam, which is an important US ally in the attempts to hedge against China's expansionism, that's hardly a liberal democracy. No, it isn't. And look, it's entirely understandable that the US would want to reach out and find any friends it can, as it did in the Cold War. I guess what some of America's friends are sort of questioning is why it has to frame freedom versus autocracy quite in quite such sort of Darth Vader versus Luke Skywalker. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) <laughs> so so the line here is that not for the first time, the, the West, if you like, is mistaking its own unity for a global consensus. And you make it very clear about the rest of the world's ambivalence about the Western response to Russian aggression. You very rarely hear that. Final question, Ed. Let's put, bring this back to China because China figures prominently in Australia's foreign policy deliberations for obvious reasons. Could it be that Beijing could calculate that the longer the US is focused on Eastern Europe, the more scope there is for China to grow, just as it did after the US was uh, distracted by the post 9-11 wars. Ed Luce. Uh, It could be. I mean, it's quite a fraught question, a very important question that you're asking, but it's quite a difficult one to answer clearly because I think, you know, China, China probably recognizes that Putin's made a massive miscalculation here, a massive blunder. And the degree to which there is more European unity and transatlantic unity uh, and more framing of this as autocracy versus democracy, well, that's not good for China because China had actually been having a pretty good time picking off different parts of Europe and and basically getting its way. And that might not be quite so easy. Um, Europe's also going to massively increase its defense spending. 
not just the border states in Eastern Europe, but across Europe, I think, you know, Germany being a, the primary example, there's going to be much more expenditure. So that that would probably count on the negative side for China. Um, but America's distraction, it's almost sort of default return to a transatlantic focus does give China, I agree with you, and I agree with that sort of part of the premise of your question, does give China more opportunities to test its limits in the South China Sea and beyond. Well, Ed, it's great to have you on ABC Radio again. It's a real pleasure, Tom. Thank you. Edward Luce, the Financial Times Chief US Commentator and Columnist. If you just tuned in, you're on Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer. Up next, the Solomons, China's growing foothold in the South Pacific. the Solomon Islands about a proposed security deal with Beijing raises grave concerns about China's growing footprint and the possible militarisation of the South Pacific. To assess what this move means for the region, I'm joined by Anne-Marie Brady, a global fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Centre in Washington and professor in politics at the University of Canterbury in Christchurch, New Zealand. Anne-Marie, welcome back to ABC Radio National. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Just to remind us about this important issue, this, this proposed security agreement between China and the Solomon Islands, what does it involve and what is it believed to cover? Under the draft agreement, China could send military personnel, intelligence and information support police and naval boats to the Solomons. And the Solomon Islands is going to provide legal status and judiciary immunity for this mission. And it's going to be valid for five years, automatically renewed. So it's a really big deal. It's a major military and intelligence presence on the Solomon Islands where there is no reason or justification for such a projection of power in the Pacific. Now, this draft agreement was leaked. I mean, how significant is that? Well, that indicates that there isn't um, universal support for it within Sogavari's uh, government. So I think uh, we have a, a tiny window of opportunity where uh, every possible avenue has to be explored by interested states whose security is going to be affected by this new new arrangement with China. Because, uh, you know, the geography is in the Solomons is just really crucial for the security of the mm. Pacific. If a hostile power controls the Solomon Islands, as mm. we saw um, in World War II with Japan, it has a direct impact 
on the sea lines of communication for the Pacific Island nation states, Australia as well, and also New Zealand. And that's not just important for our trade, it's also important for our defence. It's a really big deal, but it's there's a tiny sliver of hope because this document has been released that um, some pressure can be port, uh, brought to bear on the Sokovari government and on um, other governments within um, the Solomons, the regional provincial governments, to, to stop this agreement being signed. Now, you're in Washington right now, Anne-Marie. Do you think the Biden administration and the Congress, do they hold the same grave concerns uh, that you just mentioned about Canberra and Wellington they have over China's latest strategic move? In some sectors they do, and there is renewed uh, focus on the Pacific, and there has been actually for a number of years. Uh, There's a Pacific caucus in the US Congress. That's a relatively new phenomena. And both the Biden administration and the Trump administration before it have said that they um, are um, concerned and interested in Pacific politics. However, I think that they are a bit slow to react and they have been very reliant on Australia's assessments in the Solomons. And we heard from the uh, leader of the opposition, Matthew Whale, in the last couple of days that he actually directly informed the Australian High Commissioner Mm. last year that he had very uh, strong reason to believe that China was going to expand military presence in the Solomons. So the Australian governments had this information and didn't react. And the US uh, has worked closely with Australia on the Solomons. So there's a sort of problem there about Mm. the advice that's been given to the Australian government and partners about the Solomons. Yes, well, you've made the point that Canberra, um, as well as New Zealand and, and the United States, they really need to take a cold, hard look at the effectiveness of their people on the ground as well as their policies. What, in your view, have been the shortcomings? Well, there's been this sort of, you know, you get the kind of a groupthink and wedding to a particular policy once it's got into place. And one particular policy that I highlighted in my op-ed that came out in the Sydney Morning Herald on Saturday was about... Ramsey, the regional assistant mission to the Solomon Islands, which Australia and New Zealand contributed very significant resources to, to 2003 and 2017. So that was all about supporting, trying to to, um, keep Solomon together as a functioning state by really emphasising central government power. And it's entrenched this corrupt politics at the very top and has led to this appeasement strategy towards Prime Minister Sogavari. You know, the day before this document, the security agreement was leaked, Sogavari met with the Australian High Commissioner in the Solomons and was offered a whole package of um, benefits for his government. So that the degree of cynicism of Sogavari and the <laughs> indifference to Australia is actually beggar's belief, you know. Something's got to change. Well, yeah, I mean, is it fair to say that, well, on that point, though, I mean, you mentioned Ramsey from 2003 to 2017. This was the the Australian and New Zealand intervention in the Solomon Islands. I mean, should we still acknowledge that the Solomons is a failed state? Well, it it can't secure its borders. It can't save its people when they've been dying from COVID. We've seen some really tragic 
scenes and had terrible stories coming out of the Solomons. And Australia's done really amazing and wonderful work to try and help with that and in sending in health workers into the Solomons to help with COVID. Um, it's a very corrupt government that can't pay its public servants. It meets the measures, the typical measures of a failed state. So what do you do when there's a failed state? Well, you can work to make it more resilient by strengthening local government. And that's something that Australia has been hesitant to do for fear of offending Sogavari, going back to this policy of trying to keep the, um, the, the central government happy. So Australia has got um, projects at the regional level. For example, there's a project to develop the Bina Harbour as a major port that's on in Malaita. And, you know, they could go harder on these regional projects and just strengthen the arm of local leaders. And meanwhile, the Solomons are scheduled to host the 2023 South Pacific Games. This has become a political issue. Tell us more. Well, Sogavari is using the Pacific Games, uh, hosting the Pacific Games as an excuse to delay holding national elections and there's talk of constitutional change which could lead to him instituting a five-year change, five-year term. We're really seeing uh, Sogavari mimic the strong man model, the Bainimarama approach, the Putin she approach as well, which is a very worrying development. But, you know, this part of the justification for the security arrangement is to provide support for the Solomon's government specifically. So that, that's one element to it. But going back to the South Pacific Games, I mean, in a time of COVID with very vulnerable Pacific nations, why are events going to be held in person at this time? You know, it just doesn't make sense. And that is an out for Pacific countries is they could request that the Pacific Games not be held because of the COVID risk. On ABC Radio National, this is Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer and my guest is Professor Anne-Marie Brady from the University of Canterbury in New Zealand. Anne-Marie, do Australian and New Zealand policymakers, do they sometimes overlook the agency of these Pacific Island nations? I'm not just thinking about the Solons, but others. I mean, in fairness to them, if they can get a better deal from China, why shouldn't they just pursue their own interests? I don't think our governments overlook the agency of Pacific Island nations. The problem is in that some of those Pacific Island states, you've got very, very corrupt um, politicians and they are profiting from what China and Taiwan can offer them. And that's been an issue in the, in the Pacific for, well, at least since the mid-1990s, late 1990s, when the China-Taiwan diplomatic rivalry started getting sort of hotting up in the Pacific. So I called it a perfect storm and, and something I wrote in 2012. You know, China didn't create that problem of the corruption, but they their money sort of accentuates it. This really deteriorates um, the already fragile situation um, in these relatively new uh, democracies. So, but Australia and New Zealand um, can do better in how they engage in the Pacific. And one of the things they can do, I think, is they really, um, you know, their security 
national security should be more a part of the conversation in the dialogue amongst Pacific Island nations. They have the Bikitawa Agreement and the BOE Agreement as well. So they've already got the beginnings of that conversation. They need to do more because, as I said earlier, if China establishes a military and intelligence base on the Solomons, it will affect the security of all the island nations as well as uh, Australia and New Zealand. So it's not just an issue for the Solomons government. It's an, an issue for all of us in the Pacific region. And hence, New Zealand and Australia um, have, for example, asked for the support of Fiji and Papua New Guinea in trying to um, persuade the Sogavari government not to pursue this agreement. But I don't think words are enough anymore. You need yeah. some change in policy. You need to put your money where your mouth is, as they say. Yeah, but the um, the Chinese position will be weakened, presumably because this Prime Minister of the Solomon, Sogavaris, he's pretty unpopular with the Solomon Islanders, correct? He is. And there was a fatal error made last year when there were um, protests in Honiaria. So, you know, they, things move really fast. I remember watching it um, from New Zealand and the sort of the first news we got was about the violence in Honiaria. But there's some really good writing that was done in the days afterwards by Solomon journalists documenting that it began with a peaceful protest against Sogavari and, you know, raising issues about Sogavari. And then the Sogavari government told the police to use force, to use batons and tear gas against the protesters. Now, as happens in many situations, when you use force against peaceful protesters, they fight back. And the protesters turned to uh, Honiara's Chinatown, and that is the symbol of the corrupt money that has been feeding the political and elite in the Solomons for a long time. Remember in 2005, Honiara burned as well. And you know China has been involved in that as Taiwan, as I said, but China's been... the the Solomons has only recognised the PRC since 2019, but China's been their major economic partner for a long time, buying up a lot of their forests, for example. So Honiara Chinatown symbolises that corruption for the um, Solomon Islands people. So it's been the unfortunate target twice now. Anyway, Australia and New Zealand sent in military forces to quell the violence and they arrived when things are all quiet when that vote of non-confidence was going against Sogavari. So it served to strengthen his arm in addition to the funds he provided to MPs, having New Zealand and Australia yeah, there, yeah. really just strengthened his arm. And so we should not be supporting Sogavari. We should let, that was an intervention, we should let the Solomon's people decide about their government. If you're right about Sagavari and the, the Solomon's leadership and the Chinese presence, which could quickly escalate and develop into a military foothold, Emery, if you're right about that, shouldn't we then take solace in knowing that this agreement, this security agreement, may well get voted down in the Solomon Islands Parliament? What's your assessment? Well, it's very slender chances at the moment. This is the, you know, New Zealand, Australia and other interested parties will be 
be doing their best. Um, but it may um, be the case that um, the best will not be enough. So, you know, we've, as I said last year, we saw what happened in the parliament. Votes were bought. So um, there's no guarantee that MPs will represent national interests. They represent their own financial interests. We've seen that before in the Solomons. Now, just in the recent days, we've had a lot of commentary on this subject in the Australian press. Uh, the Aspie researcher, Fergus Hansen, he's effectively called for an Australian version of the Monroe Doctrine in the Southwest Pacific, that is exclude external powers from our region, or rather family, as he puts it, and Australia should enforce this. Meanwhile, David Llewellyn-Smith, he's a former owner of the foreign affairs magazine, The Diplomat, he presents this crisis as Australia's Cuban Missile Crisis from 1962, and we spoke with the distinguished military historian Max Hastings about that last week. Now, Llewellyn-Smith says that the Solomon's base, quote, has to be a red line China is not allowed to cross, and he further asserts that Canberra must throw everything at this. Anne-Marie, how, how do you think this might play out? Yeah, Australia and New Zealand and the US and France and Fiji and all the other interested players in the Pacific should be throwing everything at trying to prevent the security uh, agreement. That is uh, an accurate um, response to the seriousness of it. There is no justification for China establishing a military presence in the Solomons. It is meant to cut off uh, Australia and New Zealand from uh, the US military uh, support and prevent New Zealand and US forces going beyond if there was any uh, uh, military situation and to control the seas. So it is both an immediate and a long-term threat. And it would have, you know, I know some people would say, oh, well, you know, in a time of conflict, you would just bomb that base. Yeah, sure. In the meantime, it has a chilling effect across the Pacific. And we have other states who are vulnerable, who are in massive debt to China with no way of paying it back. So you can't let this situation prevail because it could be the beginning of a terrible escalation cycle um, for the security in the Pacific. And as I said, there is absolutely no justification for it. There's no security crisis that requires Chinese Navy mm. presence in the Solomons. To be continued, Anne-Marie, thanks so much for being on ABC Radio National. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Anne-Marie Brady, she's a Global Fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Centre in Washington and Professor in Politics at the University of Canterbury in New Zealand. You're on RN's Between the Lines with me, Tom Switzer. Up next, historian Margaret Cameron Ash on how England beat France in the race to found Australia.
why do you think the British established a colony in what became New South Wales in 1788? You see, most people, they just think it was a dumping ground for convicts, don't they? Here, for instance, is David Hill, author of 1788 and Convict Colony. Here he is on this program a few years ago. They were desperate to get rid of surplus convicts. There was a crime wave in the second half of the 1700s in, in England. Uh, the jails were overflowing. Uh, the prison hulks were overflowing. And there was a big fear of disease spreading from uh, the jails and the hulks into the broader society. And uh, Botany Bay was chosen as a last resort, and a pretty poor last resort at that. Uh, they just wanted somewhere to dump the convicts away from England. That's the former ABC Managing Director David Hill on Between the Lines in 2019. However, my next guest, she challenges the conventional wisdom. In the early summer of 1786, she tells us, the British government did not even think about the Pacific Ocean. Instead, the Prime Minister at the time, William Pitt the Younger, this was under King George III, he was finalising a commercial treaty to end centuries of bankrupting wars with France. Yet things changed dramatically and Pitt resolved to send an occupation force to Botany Bay immediately. Why? Why did Pitt suddenly change his mind? Margaret Cameron Ash is author of Beating France to Botany Bay, The Race to Found Australia. It's published by Quadrant Books. Her other books include Lying for the Admiralty, Captain Cook's Endeavour Voyage. It's published in 2018. Marty, as you're also known, welcome to ABC Radio. Thanks for the invitation, Tom. Now, let's start by placing this remarkable story in its proper context. So after Captain Cook's epic voyage in the 1760s and 1770s, the colonisation of Australia, that was recommended at two parliamentary inquiries, 1779 and 1785, but the effort failed. Why? Uh, yes, it was uh, Joseph Banks's suggestion both times, and it failed. And uh, there were two perennial reasons. One was cost, and the other was the veto of the East India Company. They had uh, exclusive trading rights right through the Indian and Pacific Oceans. Uh, Australia was right in the middle of that, and they didn't want any competition. Uh, the, the other reason for the first one, the Bunbury inquiry, was that uh, the uh, commission itself went a bit tropo, went a bit radical. They decided to end transportation altogether and keep the convicts in uh, England by building penitentiaries uh, where they would uh, repent, uh, get used to hard labour and become useful citizens. So that legislation was passed and poor old Banks lost his cohort of occupiers for Australia. But Prime Minister Pitt, in the northern summer of 1786, he suddenly changed his mind and resolved to send Governor Arthur Phillip and a fleet of 11 ships on the race for what came to be known as Australia. Why the sudden change? Well, uh, after seven months of complete silence about Botany Bay, they did, as you say, uh, leap into action. And that was because of a bombshell uh, that was thrown uh, by the Americans, actually, uh, in the form of a letter uh, which said that uh, the French, that is La Perouse, were sailing not just for the goodness of science, 
uh, but to plant colonies in New Holland. And um, this such a prospect overrode any British worries about cost or about the EIC. As, as Geoffrey Blaney says uh, in, in The Tyranny of Distance, it was simply vital that France should not be allowed to occupy such a strategic site. Okay, so the British intelligence alerted Pitt about the, 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 this vital piece of intelligence, this looming French expedition to the Pacific. We'll talk about the American role very soon. But as you say in your book, today we think of England and France obviously as close allies. You know, they're allies in both world wars, NATO allies. However, at the time, and we're talking about the 1780s here, Marty, England and France were fierce rivals. How did the French get a jump start in the race for a Pacific empire? Because they had the most gain, uh, having lost the most in the Seven Years' War, they'd, they'd lost uh, their uh, pretty well everything. Their North American empire in, in the form of Canada, uh, the West Indies, most of them, uh, the East, uh, lost their influence in the East. And so they were going to get their own back by starting an, a new French empire in the Southern Hemisphere. And uh, the great man here was Louis Bougainville. He, he was a man of action. First, he went south and he uh, colonised the Falklands with Canadian French uh, refugees. Uh, and then he circumnavigated the globe, looking for anything he might pick up. And he did uh, claim possession of uh, seven places across the Pacific. He would have cl claimed an eighth, namely Australia, but he was blocked by the Great Barrier Reef. And uh, he said that he heard the voice of God and he backed out and went north around New Guinea. That was just uh, 18 months before Captain Cook was on that coast. Okay, so context here. This is obviously in the lead up to the French Revolution of 1789, this race for Botany Bay, what's the last great Anglo-French contest before that revolution. Now, La Perouse, he has two French frigates. Uh, they sailed past Sydney Heads on January 23, 1788. But Arthur Philip and his first fleet, they still beat France to Botany Bay by just a few days. Marty. That's right. It's an extraordinary story. The, uh, the French should have won this part of the race too. When the French uh, in Paris realised that uh, this first fleet was going, uh, the Minister uh, of Marine uh, put a letter together with new instructions for La Perouse, who'd been in the Pacific for 18 months by this stage, uh, put it in an envelope, sent the envelope to Moscow. A courier took it across Siberia. He arrived in Kamchatka, uh, burst through the ballroom doors and uh, handed it to La Perouse. La Perouse tells the story of this. He's <laughs> He says it was much better uh, reading the letter than dancing with the locals. The uh, letter told him that the English were going to Botany Bay and he must go there straight away. And he should have been got there by Christmas. However, although he cancelled the rest of his agenda, he just couldn't bring himself to get, give up on some uh, non-existent treasure islands which were on the map he had in front of him, which had been published by the British Admiralty. The Admiralty knew the islands weren't there. They'd been dismissed uh, a century before. But uh, by leaving them there, 
uh, it provided a red herring for anyone who came after Cook. Uh, and so he wasted uh, three or four weeks and um, uh, the French eventually sailed south and, as you say, got to see uh, the east coast at Broken Bay on the 23rd and turned south. Just say the French arrived here earlier, say in late December 1787 or early January 1788, how would things be different today? They'd be very different, um, <laughs> I would think, because although we can argue that the British had 11 ships and the French had only two, mm. uh, don't forget half the people on those ships uh, re recalcitrant uh, convicts and also totally unarmed. And mm. from their perspective, the French ships were there as taxis to take them back to Europe. So I don't think um, Philip would have stood much chance, really. Wow, I, I, very interesting. Is there a parallel here with the space race in the 1960s? Look, there is. Uh, when, before Kennedy uh, entered the White House, he thought uh, the space race was all a waste of money and he wasn't interested, uh, much the same as, as Pitt uh, was far more interested in his Anglo-French uh, commercial treaty uh, than what was going on in the Pacific. But when your rival takes off, when Yuri Gagarin took off and uh, circled the earth, that was enough for the Americans. Even, even Kennedy thrust caution to the wind and said, we will be on the moon within a decade. And that's, that's exactly what happened with Pitt. Fascinating. My guest is Margaret Cameron Ash. She's the author of a new book called Beating France to Botany Bay, The Race to Found Australia. It's published by Quadrant Books, this week's number one bestseller in Sydney. Now, Marty, we mentioned earlier this bombshell that triggered the crisis cabinet meeting uh, in the summer of uh, 1786. Now, that brings us to the role the Americans play here. Now, clearly what distinguishes your story from the conventional wisdom about this matter is the importance you attach to the Americans. Now, the US and France were allies during the US Revolutionary War against the British. So I suppose the first question here is, why were the Americans wary of French intentions in the Pacific? Well, the French-Franco-American uh, alliance that uh, Franklin had signed with the French was- uh, Benjamin Franklin. Yes, uh, was was just uh, a, 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 a marriage of convenience uh, against a mutual enemy, namely Britain. That war was over. The, the, they were still good friends. They still wanted, for purposes of trade, they were very anxious. Uh, the Americans were very anxious that the French would trade with them. But that is not the same as territory. And the French uh, ambassador, Thomas Jefferson, uh, was the most expansionist of the founding fathers. He uh, would look out uh, from his uh, house in Monticello and look west and say to himself, one day, my son, all this will be yours. He had great plans of picking off any Mex uh, Spanish um, uh, settlements over there, and he was going to uh, get them all in the end. And so he di certainly didn't want the fr French uh, doing anything on his specific coast. Because he was so worried about this, about what, what La Perouse was going to do, 
he uh, got his friend, uh, John Paul Jones, the Scottish-born American leader of the uh, American Navy, who happened to be in France at the same time and was going out on the coast over some other business. He wrote him a letter saying, go up to Brest, the port of Brest, where La Perouse was loading, and find out what's going on. In actual fact, Jones was a very good spy, and he, uh, a month after uh, Lafrouz had left, he sent back a letter uh, which uh, spelt out exactly what uh, the two French ships were, were holding, were uh, had in in, on, in people and in machinery and so on. Uh, they had uh, a lot of farmers on board, agricultural in- instruments, heaps and heaps of plants fit for the south of France, as what you always said in those days. He, it, it was a very particular and very well uh, drafted letter, and I, I've put it in the book. The minute I saw that letter, I thought, this has to be the letter that launched the first fleet. My problem was that uh, how on earth, this letter was uh, 5th of October, 1785, and we're we're talking 18th of August, 1786. Uh, But my, uh, my purveyor of this letter was another, even more remarkable Frenchman, and this was John Ledyard of Connecticut, who was a very quixotic and uh, extraordinary man who's had several... And he was a veteran of Captain Cook's final voyage, correct? Absolutely. He'd, he'd, uh, when there was, he was still a colonist, uh, this is before the, um, the separation, uh, he sailed on the, uh, with the third voyage, which was looking for the Northwest Passage. And in so doing, they had stopped at Tasmania en route and they'd spent three or four days there so he knew and wrote very well of what was then thought to be part of um, New Holland Uh, it was still meant to be joined and so when Jefferson got this letter from Jones he called in his friend Ledyard and said uh, what's all this about Ledyard was able to say to him well I can tell you that um these colonies will be planted in New Holland uh, because that is the place where they would thrive. The only alternative that Jones had suggested was Alaska. And he said, these citrus plants aren't going to thrive on the Alaskan coast. So they knew, that the Americans knew that La Perouse was going to settle Australia. The, they didn't feel like telling the British, funnily enough. And so uh, it could have just ended there. But then the Marquis of Buckingham, uh, William Pitt's first cousin, wanted an American to front his gun-running operation to Venezuela. This is all in the um, American uh, correspondence uh, archives. Mm. So the the American role here is is so important, but we very rarely hear about the role that Jefferson and and the spies play in, in terms of the Western settlement of Australia. That's right. That's right. And and it, well, it's it's well. I don't think it's ever been uh, spoken of before. This no. this letter has been known of, and whether it's because it uses the phrase New Holland instead of Australia or what, I, I, it, it is extraordinary to me that it hasn't been taken up before. You mentioned La Perouse and these two French frigates. They just miss out on this beating the English by days. What happened then? They they just departed from the continent, right? Well, they did. Um, they stayed there for six weeks, did a lot of surveying, went up as far as the suburb of Liverpool and all sorts of things. They all met each other. Uh, La Perouse was invited over for, for two days and he had a lovely time in um, Sydney Cove. They 
were very friendly. But then, yes, the French departed on the 10th of March and nobody ever saw them again. No, that's right. Their, their, boat, their, their boat just disappears. Do we have any idea where the French ended up? Somewhere in the Pacific, presumably. Well, about 40 years later, they were, there was wreckage found at Vanikoro, which is part of the Solomon Islands, uh, somewhere between uh, New Guinea and Fiji, yes. Well, this is truly a fascinating story. Now, the book, which rewrites the history of the founding of modern Australia, it's called Beating France to Botany Bay, The Race to Found Australia. The publisher, Quadrant Books, and the author is Margaret Cameron Ash. Marty, thanks so much for being on ABC Radio. That was fun, Tom. Well, that's it for another show. And remember to hear this or past episodes, including my recent exchange with the distinguished British military historian, Max Hastings, on why the West needs to reach painful concessions with Putin to end the Ukraine war. If you'd like to hear Max Hastings or prominent Singaporean intellectual Kishore Mabulbani or past episodes, just go to abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. Or, of course, you can just go to the ABC Listen app where you can download us for free or wherever you get your shows online. I'm Tom Switzer and hope you can tune in again next week. to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.